0: Today we will consider a boy named Reggie who became quite edgy about his name, parental restraint, and an irrepressible desire for fame. But the pianist from Pinner became quite a winner when he crossed the Atlantic as Captain Fantastic. The Rhyme and Reason of Sir Elton Hercules John I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this... Is watching America.
1: Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life,
0: it's panicking America. Uh oh, it's oh, oh, oh. trouble in America. Uh oh, uh oh, oh, oh. From WHRV Norfolk, this is watching America. He has sold more than 300 million recordings worldwide and has had 50 top 40 hits. In the United States in the 1970s, he had seven consecutive number one albums, and then later won five Grammys, an Oscar, a Tony, a Kennedy Center Award, and received a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth II. Few have surpassed his musical success. Now the Rocket Man, is enjoying renewed attention both on screen and in print elton hercules John. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my extreme pleasure to welcome Mark Bego to Watching America. And for good reason. He's an extremely talented writer, biographer, who has a specialty of dressing people in the music business. He's written about Michael Jackson. He's written about Madonna and Whitney Houston. And uh, one of his most recent works was 2018 Aretha Franklin, The Queen of Soul. But he has turned his attention to the rocket man, hasn't the entire world at this moment, and of... Of all the works that have come out, I think this is one of the most thorough and interesting ones. I, I'm s- delighted to have you here, Mark. Thank you so very much for joining us on Watching America. Let's talk about the boy from Pinner who grew up. How did you develop an interest in Elton John to begin with?
1: Well, to tell you the truth, I knew who Elton John was and loved his music in the 60s. I was a big freak on Three Dog Night. And right. I loved the song Lady Samantha. On their suitable for framing album. And so I'm one of those guys who I I don't download music. I want the album or I want the CD. I want to know who's playing sax on cut three. I want to read all everything.
0: So did you have Empty Sky?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't have it until I – that was later because it wasn't available in America for a while Mm. until afterward. But I bought it as soon as I could get it, uh, which had to be the mid-'70s after his career came – you know, really came full circle. Then they reissued it here. So uh, I had an awareness of it. And – I just I loved his music and I bought everything. I'm one of those people who like will glom on to someone I really like and then I've got to have everything.
0: Yes, yes. I know the disease. I suffer from it as well. Um, His point of origin with his daddy was not always the healthiest one. Uh, Stanley Dwight was uh, quite a conundrum for him. Would you like to explain a bit of that for the audience?
1: Well, Elton felt like he could never do anything to impress his father. His father was very fastidious, very a uh, road herd over his own personal record collection and all his possessions. Didn't want Elton playing with them, uh, was very impressed, unimpressed with what Elton was interested in. Even when Elton started to display uh, a proficient talent for the piano and for music, uh, it didn't impress his dad. And his dad had his own albums. He was into jazz and, and classical things. And uh, a couple times when Elton wanted to uh, listen to his father's records, he was reprimanded. So uh, Elton ha- had a lust for music. And as represented in the movie about Elton, this uh, was really, really something he could play by ear. He could sit down and just make up his own songs or replicate songs that he could do. So I think that he grew up with these kind of uh, what they would say, uh, a psychologist would say, daddy issues, you know, always right. trying to impress Dad, and, and being completely unable to. And his great frustration was the fact that nothing he did was ever good enough for Dad. Um, and this, this became uh, a driving force as much as a, a lifelong resentment to him, uh, so that when he became famous, he still didn't get the kind of uh, respect that he thought his father should show him. Not in a bad way, but just like at least a nice pat on the head or something like, you're doing good, kid. And he never got that from his father.
0: Well, as a child, he was witness to uh, an estranged marriage uh, right from the start, because Stanley and his mother, Sheila, Really did not have a great intimacy uh, or a chord between them as far as communication. And so he was kind of off to the side, and then, you know, as, as you've indicated, would wander over to the Ivories and tinkle uh, as a release. But he did grab his daddy's records. I, I you know, I know he've said, he's said he has said a number of occasions he used to grab Frank Sinatra albums, you know, like Only the Lonely and uh, Music for Lovers and Rather Strange Things for a Six-Year-Old to be playing. But he would do that. And then he kind of made his way into Johnny Ray. His stepdaddy came on the scene, John Fairbrother. Uh, What did you make of that influence on his life?
1: Uh, He definitely was more encouraging to Elton. He really felt like more of a father to Elton than his real father did. Uh, He at least took an interest in Elton and had an appreciation of what he was doing. So this kind of made up for that. But then Elton had an odd relationship with his mother as well, which continues to this day. Uh, He hasn't spoken to his mother, Sheila, in ages. In fact, on Sheila's 90th birthday, Elton was not there at all. He sent her flowers, and according to one report, she spent her 90th birthday in the company of friends and an Elton John impersonator. Is that crazy? That is (laughs) crazy. I couldn't have made that up.
0: Well, you know, I'm jumping ahead here by decades. Um, By the time 1975 rolls around and he's at Dodger Stadium, she is in the audience there. Uh, And she's crying. And everyone thought that she was crying because she was so emotionally moved to see her son on the stage and in the height of his glory. But in actual fact, she revealed later in interviews that she was crying because her son's life was a wreck. I mean, he was doing extensive amounts of cocaine, was out of control. So it's... As you say, a a very tenuous, uh, extremely difficult relationship that the two of them bore with each other—you know, favor, disfavor, and what have you. Uh, I—we're jumping around here a little bit, but I want to ask you about Elton's rather capricious nature. Uh, One minute he can be extremely loyal and moved. I mean, we we can just think of—you know—the way he has spoken about uh, Ryan White's family. Uh, For those who may not remember, Ryan White uh, was a hemophiliac who contracted HIV um, in Indiana and died in 1990. He was terribly impressed by, um, the family. He called them quote unquote, true Christians. And that changed him. So he can be extremely generous, loving. And then the next moment he can freeze people out as evidently he did do with his mother on a number of occasions.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, the one wrong word, and to, to paraphrase Alton, the bitch is back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, I've got mental images of the Caribou album in my mind. So.
1: <laughs> yes, precisely.
0: Uh, what do you make of the feuds he's had with people like Madonna and, and various others uh, within the industry? Now, he's evidently patched it up. That's the latest we've heard. But he said some rather <laughs> unkind things.
1: Oh, he can be getting a real snit. I mean, he has a history for doing that. But, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, he and Madonna have since uh, kissed and made up. So he does have the ability to return to a proper perspective. But he's someone who's very passionate about everything he does. He's going to chew your, chew your head off, you know, and then ask questions later. So he's just that type of person. I've met him on three occasions, and he was always very nice. But I, I've heard from others that if, if you piss off Elton, uh, you're on the bad list for whatever time, time period that may be.
0: I've never had the pleasure of meeting him. I've met many celebrities, but I haven't met Elton John. So I'm extremely envious of you uh, having had that pleasure and three times, no less. Uh, With your encounters with him, do you sense that he's assessing you very, very quickly? Because celebrities have to do that to protect themselves.
1: Well, of course, and and I'm someone who will meet someone and know if they're a nice person or not almost instantly. So he has that same kind of perspective. So being for me, being a, a rock industry journalist, of course, uh, you know, when you when I meet uh, celebrities, they know that I'm a writer. You know, and, and mm-hmm. if they if they piss me off or something or we don't get a, along, they know I'll talk. You know, right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> I'll write a book There's, about you. There are, there it. are
0: re- the repercussions. <laughs> yeah. Um. Do you th- does he ha- have a large entourage with him? Because one gets that impression.
1: Yes. Yes. On all three occasions. The first time I met him was with my publicist, David Salador. And uh, we were the guests of Tony King, who's a very close uh, business associate and mm-hmm. friend of Elton's, who's still around in the Elton circle. And uh, we went backstage and met him just very briefly in the 80s. And he was very nice, very gracious. Uh, it was before the show. So he was, you know, concentrating on the show. So it was kind of one of those, you know, hi, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Good to see you kind of things. And it was very nice, but very gracious and nice. Uh, and then the other two times that I've met him uh, were with uh, in the company of my, my best buddy, Mary Wilson of the Supremes. And she and I have twice attended his Oscar viewing party in Hollywood. And uh, he was very gracious. And as you said, surrounded by an entourage, five bodyguards, uh, a handler, Uh, a personal photographer. Uh, In an event with Elton, like Elton John's uh, Oscar viewing party, there's no pulling out your uh, cell phone and taking a picture. The photos must be taken by his personal photographer, and he has to approve of them. And if you want a copy, you have to buy them from the photographer. So he controls everything. So you will not... You'll not get a picture of Elton blinking his eyes, or or, you know, having his tongue out, or or some odd uh, odd shot. He makes sure he approves of everything.
0: When you interview him, uh, is his publicist there running interference for anything he may say, or is he able just carte blanche, able to let go and say what he wants?
1: Well, to confess, I've never sat down for an interview with him. It's always been in a social setting. So um, in those particular instances, there was a publicist there, uh, even at his Oscar viewing party, because there was no talking to the press unless they cleared it. So he's very well protected, even at his own event, where the tickets go for thousands of dollars. So it doesn't matter if you paid thousands of dollars to get in. You, if you want want to break through the flanks of uh, of bodyguards, you have to have a uh, uh, you know you have to have a certain uh, attitude and demeanor, and not have a camera in your hand.
0: Well, going back to the chronology, at the age of 15, he has a band called Bluesology, and uh, he's uh, prior to that was working in pubs, uh, very much with the aid of John Fairbrother, uh, taking a hat around to help elton get the money to buy his first electronic keyboard and he starts bluesology and then they work with long john baldry and he finds himself basically not wanting to be doing the the, the dinner music circuit type thing and he wants to escape goes to work for dick james uh part of the british Timpan Alley publishing and what have you does a series of demos and runs into of course bernie Tupin. Um, some have alleged, and even Elton has uh, alluded to this, that he actually fell in love with Bernie Tupin, Tupin even though it wasn't you know, um, brought to fruition physically. Um, what do you make of that relationship?
1: Oh, absolutely. Elton was was uh, so... Well, of course, you know, this was the 60s, so uh, the idea of a gay lifestyle for someone who wants to be a public figure was something sort of taboo, so he would naturally keep his his uh, the ideas of homosexuality to himself. But when he met Bernie, he met the perfect man for him. Absolutely perfect. So he... He fell head over heels in love with Bernie's writing, Mm -hmm. lyrics, Mm -hmm. and he also fell in love with Bernie. No question. Absolutely no question. But Bernie uh, was not gay or bi and had no interest in that. To him, Elton was the brother he never had, and that's the relationship the two of them have with each other. So it's more like a... A brotherhood.
0: Yeah, I I think if you are familiar, I know you are, with the album Captain Fantastic. There's a song on it at the end, uh, just prior to Curtains, which is one of my favorite tunes. But there's a song on it called We All Fall in Love Sometimes. And I've always thought that Bernie Tupin, who has the capacity to do this and has proven this time and time again, was, if you will, getting into the mindset of Elton John about how Elton John looked at him. Uh,
1: Absolutely. I agree
0: yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music. fantastic album. Okay, so he, Bernie Tupin comes on the scene. They go and uh, share a flat really with his his mum and dad, his mum and stepdad at this point. And yet they never write in the same room. Can you explain that relationship to the audience about how they how they go about making their compositions?
1: well basically Bernie would write the lyrics to uh, the songs and Bernie had all sorts of interests of his own which uh, look at the, t- the Tumbleweed Connection Bernie always liked that was fascinated with that cowboy sort of thing yes. the cowboy yeah. lifestyle and Elton was more uh, fascinated with Judy Garland and the Yellow Brick Road so uh, what ended up happening was Bernie would write songs that were uh, more significant to him uh, like you'd find on Tumbleweed Connection and then write songs that would be more a fascination to Elton like on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was kind of Elton you know, coming out in full technicolor finally and, and, and getting out of the singer-songwriter mold of the early 70s. Uh, anyone who was around uh, in the early 70s will remember that there was this whole blossoming of that whole singer-songwriter image uh, really kind of championed by or had it kicked off by Carole King. Nice. And then Laura Nero became big suddenly after having written songs for other other people, And then Elton got swept up in it. James Taylor, all these people, Cat Stevens, all these people who wrote their own songs and sang very autobiographical kind of music. So you'll find that a lot of Elton is in those lyrics, and a lot of Bernie is in those lyrics, too.
0: Well, the early albums are very distinct. And he enlisted the help of Paul Buckmaster, an arranger for strings. And if you listen to it, all those albums, there, was, there really isn't a single track that you could say, this is top 40 material, this is a single. And so the British record company that initially hired him thought, you know, where are we going with this? We're, we're going to have a problem. And it was just, you know, they, they, they sent a series of discs out just in the hope that some of the United States would hear it. And then uni picked it up and uh, decided to go with it. And by the time they got as you were aware, to the second album, third album, and Los Angeles, things broke out. Can you describe what happened in Los Angeles circa 1970?
1: Well, I... Th- Coming out of uh, we, as we just mentioned, this whole singer-songwriter sort of of era, this is something that was really blossoming and centered on the troubadour in Los Angeles. Was which was a uh, there was, was a place in New York City that was similar called the Bottom Line, where you would see people about to just explode. You would see uh, say at the Bottom Line here, I saw Prince before anyone knew who Prince was, and the, you know five minutes later he was the biggest thing uh, that Warner Brothers Records had. Uh, uh, Elton John felt had the same thing happen to him. There was this interest in him because he came out of this sort of singer-songwriter mode. And uh, in the audience when he played the Troubadour were members of the Beach Boys. He had one of his idols, Leon Russell. Right, was there. I've met
0: him. Yeah, and yeah. Leon Russell, Leon Russell told me – that he said he was terrified because he thought to himself, "It's all over." When he saw Elton John, <laughs> and the irony of it is, is that Elton John could hardly play once he realised that uh, Leon Russell was in the second row, uh, because he'd been an idol of of Elton's, as, as you've indicated. Uh, but the truth is, is that Leon Russell thought, "Oh man, I can't jump on the on the piano like this. I, I can't emote like this. What am I going to do?"
1: And, and, look, and look what happened. It comes full circle. Yes. The album that they ended up doing together uh, in the last 10 years of, of uh, Leon's life, one of, one of the best things Elton's done in ages. So, you know, it does come full circle. Uh, but yes, the Troubadour was so key to Elton's success. Uh, all, the, all the LA music press came there and, and turned him into the next big thing by, uh, you know, really putting the spotlight on him. And his first tour of the United States, which was all small nightclub type of venues, like the Troubadour, uh, Then we went to San Francisco, and I believe he went to Philadelphia after that, uh, and played these small clubs. Well, it started a buzz, and Elton was was well on his way, and really catapulted him to the forefront of the music world, and the the eyes of the music critics. He became the darlings of of the, the music press.
0: How significant do you think uh, his early ensemble, for instance, Dee Murray on bass and Nigel Olsen on drums were to his success?
1: Well, I think that anyone uh, of Elton's stature and, and, and anyone who comes out of that sort of sit at the piano and compose your own song sort of music needs these these background people or backup people uh, for musical support to fill out the sound. And in those particular musicians, he found the right people who could uh, anticipate what was needed in a song to uh, really push Elton's music and his vocals further into the spotlight. So the bands that he has put together and the devoted musicians he's been with for years have really helped define the Elton John sound, which of course has you know several variations but they seem to be just as fluid as he is in creating, you know, going from uh, doing the, the, disco of the late seventies, the, the, the uh, singer songwriter music of the early seventies, uh, the more correct progressive pop and electronic sound of the mid eighties. They've bent and uh, conformed to everything that's going on concurrently. And they're the perfect foil for Elton.
0: Well, uh, Cardinal primary influence on on the early albums certainly was Gus Dudgeon who was his uh, his producer. So you have you know seminal albums you have Honky uh, uh, Château, Madman Across the Water and Tumbleweed Connection. They all have a distinct style. But then there's a breakout that comes in America with Rocket Man. Uh, share with us your impressions of the significance of that.
1: Well, the music was changing. It was morphing out of that '60s sound, uh, and it, then it was morphing out of that singer-songwriter sound to a bigger, a bigger sound, a more orchestrated sound. And I think "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road," especially, well, "Don't Shoot Me," uh, I'm only the piano player as well, was a breakout album. And then he took it even further uh, with "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road," and it was something. It was like a blossoming of to, to like a full sound, like a really great sound that would fill arenas like Madison Square Garden or Wembley Stadium uh, it was something that uh, you know was really quite a spectacle uh, and that's not even taking the visual I mean the, the sound was so grandiose that uh, it defined what the mid 70s was all about and you know blossomed into or melded into the whole disco era as well uh, where everything had a, a huge beat and you know a lot, of, a lot of instruments and a lot of elements going on so it took elton at the core singing at his piano and filled out the sound in a in a, a really fully realized way
0: well don't shoot me the, i'm only the piano player really was um a a, a launching point as well because uh, you had daniel on that album uh and suddenly he was getting double play he was getting am play which is top 40 stuff but he was also getting album tracks which were coming through now and suddenly people were rediscovering as you've indicated at the outset madmen across the water uh, uh honky chateau and what have you there's a whole different feel to it but then he's on the verge of becoming a caricature of himself and the you know the 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 pheasant coming out of his head the various apparatuses that he wore uh, the various inversions to conceal the fact he was losing his hair um, do you think the, the, the whole thing was possibly in close to being a shambles had it gone wrong with, with wrong press coverage?
1: What. Absolutely, absolutely. I remember seeing him dressed as Daffy Duck in Central Park yes. in New York City, yes. <laughs> and people going, "What the hell is that about?" <laughs> but it, it, you know, he always felt Elton always had this feeling about his personal looks, and uh, that you know he was kind of a chunky kid and you know round faced and you know not a sexy guy like a Bossgags or uh, or uh, Elvis Presley in his prime, you know, which was the classic rock and roll hero he was kind of this dumpy guy from Pinner and he had to do something to uh, really you know bring himself out of his shell uh, and when he put these costumes on he became as crazy as the costumes and that was that's the Elton John that we r- really love I mean one facet of him of course the ballad the balladeer is always there uh, but this this crazy over-the-top cartoon character he created helped bring him out and helped uh, really develop him into a full-fledged entertainer, not just someone who sits at a piano for an hour and a half and sings. He's someone who's a full-on spectacle.
0: Well, speaking in terms of bringing himself out, he actually came out uh, in a very famous interview with the Rolling Stone magazine where he acknowledged that he was bisexual at that point. A lot was at stake. That was one of probably the most bravest things that any performer has ever done. Because one has to bear in mind, Liberace would not even confirm his sexuality at that point. Uh, And yet, Elton, I think, to my knowledge, and you are in a better position perhaps to correct me, um, I can't think of anyone who had done that prior
1: very few I'm trying I'm racking my brain at the moment to figure out who else yeah, Liberace is, is someone that you you would note but no one really admitted it at that time it was just something you didn't do um, in, and in fact even look uh, we, I keep talking about the disco era because this is a, a, a prime era for Elton where he had to morph into different sounds to survive in in the uh, music business the village people wouldn't admit that they were gay right and uh, there are always five out of six members of the village people People were gay, so uh, this is something even they didn't do. So for, for Elton to admit that he was bisexual, which was starting to in the '70s have a certain cachet of uh, you know. Well, uh,
0: Bowie, I, I Bowie everyone... was on the scene.
1: Exactly, exactly. Look at Bowie and mascara and you know uh, and spandex. Uh, It was it was changing, where the lines between the genders was kind of blurring, and admitting he was bisexual was like one step further. Um, But everyone in the industry uh, behind the scenes knew he was gay. He wasn't bisexual at all.
0: Well, there was no real repercussion. I mean, I I do not recall because I lived through that era. Uh, I was very young, but I don't remember. People's, you know, saying, "Oh no, I'm not going to listen to Rock of the Westies uh, uh, anymore." And 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 the sales were still the same. Philadelphia Freedom singles were coming out. Uh, certainly, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. His great friendship with John Lennon. Everything was just going swimmingly, and it really didn't seem to impact either with sales or with anything that once saw in the media. His reputation at all. It just seemed to be accepted.
1: Well, it's true. It it seems like it was more like the evolution of Elton within Elton than it was the evolution of Elton in front of society. Um, He was this over-the-top character anyway. If he admitted he was bi or gay, it was no big surprise, and and it really didn't have a big impact on him. Now, with Liberace, we're talking about the 50s and television. And uh, his his uh, main fan base was uh, women yeah. lo- or, or married women who or married women who fell in love with his flamboyant character. So he didn't want to shatter shatter anyone's dreams. Let's let's talk about Barry Manilow as well. There's another person. He started out
0: in the bathhouses with exactly uh, yeah, with Bette Midler. Exactly
1: but never admitted he was gay until recently because he had that same Liberace sort of of audience where he had devoted female fans who wanted to fantasize that Barry could be their boyfriend uh, when Barry had his own boyfriend. Exactly.
0: You are listening to Watching America. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host... Alan Campbell, and I am delighted to have Mark Bego. Mark Bego has written uh, major books on celebrities and music personalities. Michael Jackson, he's written about Madonna. His latest work, well, next to latest work, uh, was a book he wrote on Aretha Franklin called The Queen of Soul. We're now talking about his work on Elton John, Rocket Man, the story of Elton John. Uh, There's uh, a publication which is awaiting to be released, and then he'll be back again, I know, because I love talking to this man. About uh, uh, another artist, but well, a group of artists, but I won't go into that yet. I'll let you anticipate. But we're talking about Elton John now. You've alluded, and we're going to go there now to the, to, to, I would say, uh, phase three, perhaps, of Elton John. So phase one would be the, with the first one, Elton John album, and then the, the one he recorded in New York City with uh, with, the, with the trio, and then we go to. Uh, as we've said, we go to Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. And then phase three would be getting the beginning of this transition into the disco era, uh, which came with the album Blue Moves, even though there was, really wasn't a hit from it, except for um, Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word. If you listen to the Blue Moves album, which was, uh, was the second double album he did after, after um, Goodbye Yellow Big Road, there's a lot of disco stuff on that.
1: Absolutely. How
0: did he survive?
1: Well, he, he went and faced disco head-on and, and made a couple of attempts at disco records. He went in, down to Philadelphia and recorded with Tom Bell, who did uh, right. the Stylistics and all those people, uh, uh, Harold Mel- Melvin and the Blue Notes, and uh, you know had that Philadelphia sound. So it was kind of a funky disco thing rather than uh, Gloria Gaynor kind of disco. But, but it was definitely out of that mode, definitely out of that mode. Uh, but as you mentioned, Blue Moves, I've been listening to that album again recently. And there are some great gems yes. on that. Yes. Some great gems. Uh, uh, bite Your Lip, Get Up and Dance. Right. Total disco. Move that muscle, Total.
0: shake that fat.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. While we're on the on the Blue Moves album, I just want to mention something. Uh, if anyone out there has the Blue Moves album and hasn't heard it in a well, while, listen to the song Idol, where yes. he talks about going backstage at an at a Elvis Presley concert and being so disappointed uh, to see firsthand what his idol had become. Yes. That song is all about that. Yes. And one of the people I interviewed is uh, Elvis Presley's stepbrother, David Stanley, who I did a book with. And that's exactly, it talks about going backstage and being shattered to meet Elvis in the circa late 70s.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. So that's,
1: that's a brilliant, brilliant song. And, and so... Uh, introspective uh, about uh, what Elton felt rock and roll was, and what he saw his rock idol become.
0: Well, he felt disillusioned also with Brian Wilson, because Bri- Brian Wilson at that point was in the height of his drug dependency. And yes. uh, and he said that he went over to, you know, uh, in the canyon, and he wanted to play with, with Brian Wilson, and Brian Wilson couldn't even handle the the, the keys. And he came away flatly depressed uh, as a result of that. So uh, there was an, an echo there, another idol of his that he was deeply distressed by and seeing the circumstances. Now, he went to a slump. So you get a series of uh, not exactly great albums that come out. Um, he really doesn't have a sense of his uh, direction at this point. You have albums like The Fox and, and what have you. What do you attribute that to? Where was the confusion? Was it simply the, the advent of disco, or were there things going on in his personal life?
1: Well, at this particular juncture, when at it, when it, the dawning of 1980, suddenly disco gave way to punk. Uh, the Sex Pistols were big. Uh, even Linda Ronstadt and Carly Simon were doing kind of more punky, hard-edged things. Mm. So Elton was again lost in the shuffle. Then the electronics of uh, uh, Duran Duran and and uh, the Thompson Twins and all these 80s characters, all this whole wave of new people came in who were uh, MTV video friendly and had a whole different sound. He was lost again. Elton had to reinvent himself. Now, one of the albums that I'm absolutely crazy about from this era is Ice on Fire. Yes. I love that album. Yeah, so cool. 80s. But he was trying, but it didn't do all that well. It wasn't a huge hit. Um, these albums, it had Nikita on it right. uh, which was a hit for him and he would hit these like one track on his albums would become a big radio hit but the the Sad songs
0: album, and things like that
1: Yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly even I'm Still Standing you know came from this era um yeah, and when when MTV was paramount in, in breaking new artists. You had to be visual as well as as sound fantastic. So here's Elton, you know, still kinda chunky, still dealing with his sexuality. He goes off and marries one of his sound uh engineers. Renee Tabell. Yeah. Right. And and uh and everyone sort of did a universal, what the heck was yeah, that about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was obviously just looking at them. and I'm like, there is no chemistry here.
0: <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, though, he speaks continuously very favorably of her. She was the one person in his life after his fame. Well, maybe not the one singular, but one of the few people in his life after his success that didn't exploit him in any way. After the divorce, and she didn't ask for much at all, after the divorce, she did not go, you know, aching to the press or try and come out with a tell-all or anything like that. And to this day, he speaks extremely favorably of her. In fact, he says she's one of the women I respect the most.
1: Well, if you, if you see the, uh, the Freddie Mercury movie or read about Freddie, it's like Freddie's relationship with Mary. Hmm. She wasn't uh, a jealous lover. She was a best friend. Right. And that's what she always says. Yeah. So yes. uh, when, when Elton got divorced, uh, they remained friends. And he, he's never said anything disparaging about her ever. And she, as you said, she's never gone, okay, I want a million-dollar book deal now. I want to tell everything. So well, she's never done that.
0: Let's wind back because uh, we neglected to mention Linda uh, Woodrow, who was a woman in his life. And when going back to the Captain Fantastic album for a second, Someone Saved My Life Tonight is about this woman, Linda Woodrow. And she wanted him to marry, and uh, he was about to do it. And some say that the actual voice that spoke to him was actually his stepfather, John Fairbrother, saying, you know, Elton, think this through, or Reggie. Reg, think this through. Um, What happened to her? Does anyone know what happened to her, or did she just go into the oblivion?
1: Mm, As I recall, uh, she... I think she was an heiress to, uh, wasn't she the heiress to the pickle fortune? I had no idea. Her, her dad ran a pickle company, and I I, I would have to look at my notes and, and look at my book, which is uh, coming out again in January, an updated version of it. But she's the one, I think her father owned a pickle company, you know, like, uh, not Vlasic Pickles, oh. but you know, something like that. And she was in love with him, and, and he was convinced that the only thing that could really straighten out his personal life is to get married. And... uh then when that didn't work out that was that was when he is supposedly put his head in in the oven trying to kill himself um and that's that's what that song is all about someone save my life tonight so um it's, it's something It was a turning point for him, where he was still struggling with who he was. Here he could write all these incredibly introspective songs, yet he really couldn't still deal with his own sexuality and his looks and his own body type, uh, his, the perception of what he was to the public. He wanted to be someone suave and elegant, and he, he didn't feel that at all. So he, instead he became suave and outrageous.
0: <laughs> Let me ask you about the Ryan uh, White uh, influence. Um, we said, or I said at the outset, that it, it was a turning point for him because it's what led him to get into rehab. He said that he had lived a very dangerous life sexually, very prom- promiscuous life sexually, and he could have easily have contracted HIV himself uh, back in the day when it was you know, rampant and, and running through various uh, communities. He seems to, at that point, have carried a guilt about those those years uh, and feeling very fortunate, almost like a survivor's guilt. And that caused him to go into rehab. Was that the primary time he went into rehab or did he lapse and go back again?
1: That was, to my knowledge, that was one of the things that really became the the last straw he there's uh i live in tucson arizona and tucson uh there's a couple of rehab clinics there and elton checked himself into one of them and made an attempt at drying out at one point uh late 80s uh, he we had a boyfriend named hugh and hugh encouraged him to uh to do so and elton tried it and it didn't didn't quite work out then along comes this whole episode with ryan white he got very close to ryan he was very uh you know taken by Ryan's story went and met Ryan's family and saw what a loving supportive family was all about mm. and it really kind of filled in this picture for him as to what was missing from his own relationship with his parents and he was so taken by the dignity with which this family faced this this horrific uh AIDS diagnosis for their young son uh he contracted something as you mentioned through uh blood transfusion or needles uh in the hospital and uh it became this pivot point for Elton where Elton saw what uh, a normal lifestyle was and um, drug-free, and he got a good look in the mirror at what he was doing with his life, and it helped turn him around. It really was an influential moment. And I know that he even salutes the memory of Ryan White in his current uh, uh, Farewell concert tour that he's working on, that he's on at the moment. So this became something very very key to him. He decided that it was time to turn his life around and that the only person, as all addicted people will know, they have to want to recover themselves. No one can do it for them or convince them to do it.
0: The second major love of his life, if we conclude, even though uh, not consummated with Bernie Tupin, this second great love of his life Without question, was David Furnish, or is David Furnish, who is now his husband? How did they meet?
1: As I recall, they—it had something to do with industry. I um, I haven't got the details in front of me, but I remember there was, I think, a video shoot of some sort had had. Uh, I had a key role in it. They, they met in, in some uh, occupational capacity and, and hit it off immediately. I can't remember whether it was David working on a video of Elton's or they met each other at a shoot, uh, but it had something to do with that. But they immediately, immediately hit it off. And David is one of the sweetest guys. I had a nice conversation with him uh, in February of this year at uh, Elton's viewing party. Very nice guy, very bright, very into marketing, and uh, very, very pro-Elton in every way. He wants to show his husband off in the very best light at all times. And he's been the most supportive uh, champion of Elton's in his entire life. So this marriage is something that really is sound, and and they're really very strongly a couple. And it's, it's so wonderful that Elton is so happy at this point to have David in his life.
0: 1997 was a terrible year for Elton. He lost two very significant people to him, one of which was Lady Diana Spencer or Princess Diana, and the other one was Versace. Uh, And David was by his side helping him through this. What's your take on what he actually took away from these great losses?
1: Well, he saw... How short life is. I mean, to both both of these people, Princess Diana and Versace, gone in an instant, senselessly gone. Diana in an accident, and Versace, of course, murdered. So it just something completely unpredictable. It wasn't like they contracted some disease or something, and you had you know months to uh, process this. So it really showed him how. Uh, tentative everyone's life is, and his own. So it, it became uh, another driving point that he wanted to do even more. This has uh, spurned him even further into wanting to uh, write bro- the music for Broadway shows, uh, to get involved in movies, uh, to get involved in this autobiography that we see on the screen uh, in Rocket Man. And it, it, it became, instead of it making him want to recede from the public. Public eye, it drove him even further to go further into the spotlight.
0: What do you think is the greatest misconception about Elton John, or more specifically Sir Elton Hercules John?
1: Well, I think the the perception that that people have that maybe isn't untrue is that he's just this pop singer. He is much more than just a pop singer who has had a lot of luck on the uh, the record charts. He's someone who actively gets involved with what he believes in. Uh, he's championing and continuing to raise money for AIDS charities through his own uh, charitable organization. His uh, unflagging work and support of friends who have illnesses or problems. Uh, case in point, uh, Leon Russell, whose career had kind of fallen apart, yes. Elton put him back on the record charts, put him back in the spotlight, and was really convinced that that was the thing to do. And it was it was brilliant on so many levels. And, and
0: he it, it, had done that too, if I may interject. He had also done that earlier on, back in the 70s, with Neil Sedaka. I mean, Neil Sedaka could, could, except out of Britain, couldn't draw 50 people, uh, and then he said, "Look, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to put you on my r- record label, Rocket Records." And you know, there was a series of hits that came out in the mid '70s for Neil Sedaka because Elton had done precisely the same thing. He'd looked at somebody who was down, disappeared, and brought them back.
1: Exactly, exactly. It kind of makes us want to uh, want to wonder what could have happened had he been able to turn around Elvis Presley. I mean, someone like Elton. Uh, wow, what a thought. That- isn't that an amazing thought? It just oh, popped yeah. into my head, actually. Yeah.
0: That's a great <laughs> thought. I mean, this is a novel, man. You just hit on something there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a book in this. <laughs> yeah, there
0: is. You better write it. Gosh, with, with all your other umpteen books you've written. My goodness, that's a great concept. Wow, what if?
1: Ooh, can you imagine if that had happened? If he was able to do with with uh, Elvis what he did with Well, We know yeah. Barbara
0: Streisand with *A Star Is Born*. Before they got Chris Christopherson, she originally went to see because uh, Peter Brown, I think, uh, was uh, her um, boyfriend at the time. He was a former hairdresser, if you may remember from the seventies. And uh, Barbara Streisand wanted to have Elvis Presley in the film. She went and saw him in Vegas. Uh, this is circa, you know, 1975 or something like that. She went to see him in Vegas and uh, basically beseeched him and said, "Would you please consider making this film?" And of course, you know, the Memphis Mafia there. No, oh, I don't make those kind of movies. Uh, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> and yeah, exactly. but, but, but if if he could have done it, Elton, my goodness, what a concept! That's great, marvelous. Oh, you, you got to write that novel. Oh, you really have to.
1: <laughs> I'll make note of that. One. Yeah, please.
0: This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and I have the extreme pleasure of talking to Mark Bego, who has just written a book on Elton. Uh, He's written many previous books on various major celebrities in the rock and roll world, and he has more yet to come out. But we're talking about Elton John at the moment. He has various homes all over the world. Now, it's estimated that his estate, and this is going to make everyone gulp, is worth about $450 million, all right? Yeah. So he has a home in Atlanta. He loves Georgia. I, I I like Georgia, but I've never quite got why he loves Georgia that much. But he loves it. I'm with you. He I'm made, with you there. He made the Peachtree album, you know, um, which is reference obviously to Georgia's main one of the main avenues. Um, he has a home in Windsor, which is where he used to entertain Lady Diana Spencer, not far actually from Windsor Castle. And he has a, a, a home he keeps in Los Angeles and in the south of France. To your knowledge, does he have others? He must surely have something in New York, I would imagine.
1: No, I think he has an apartment in New York, to my knowledge. I'm sure I'm sure there's other other places, too, which are little hideouts, but yeah, I'm sure. I mean, he's someone who could certainly go, oh, I love this house. Let's buy it. You
0: know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, he has the two boys. He and David have the two boys. Um, what significance do you think that has had for his uh, perception in the eyes of... of- his fans, those who are not even fans, just aware of him? And what do you think is the future of Elton John's legacy?
1: Well, I think that having these two young boys in his life for him to raise uh, kind of fulfills this sort of, uh, my father and I had a really lousy relationship I want to repair this kind of dynamic by having a wonderful relationship with my own son. So I think on a personal level, there's that. Um, What the public thinks of it, well, I mean, not that it matters to Elton. He's he's done it, and that's going to be it. Elton does what Elton wants. But I think it's a very benevolent thing that he has wanted to... Uh, bestow his uh, fortune and his legacy to uh, these his two sons, uh, he and David's two sons. So I think it's a wonderful thing that has grounded him even further. And now uh, one of the things that he has claimed is that uh, he wants to get off the the touring road and uh you know raise his sons and watch them grow up and not miss that so they are of the age well he'll be able to be with them when they're teenagers and and you know turning into young men so uh you know and of course the, the fact that this is supposedly his farewell tour, I think uh, Frank Sinatra had about 15 shares, had about five. <laughs> the <You> stones. Know. <laughs> exactly. They this is the new final tour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it goes on and on. But, you know, this doesn't rule out Elton being in Las Vegas for a year at a time uh, at a Caesar's Palace or whatever. I mean, being on the road on a tour bus is one thing. I'm sure it's not a tour bus, a tour jet or whatever it is. Um, uh, you know, is, is something else. So I think that he is going to, on one hand, become become something of a family man. But uh, we aren't done with Elton John. There's much more coming. He's working on the music for uh, The Devil Wears Prada as a Broadway musical. He's got other things that he needs to do. He's got more albums that he wants to do. And uh, I think that Elton John is going to be someone who's going to be like a Tony Bennett. Look at Tony Bennett in his 90s. Right. You can still go buy yeah. Tony Bennett tickets. He opens his mouth, it's Tony Bennett. I've seen him
0: three times. I love the man. Um, Amazing. Yeah, uh, I just want to ask you in regards to, to Elton... His writing companionship with Bernie Tupin we've spoken about, but he's also written with Tim Rice and with, with other persons, uh, and seems rather secure in doing that. Uh, when it comes to the Broadway stuff, of course, it doesn't seem that uh, Bernie Tupin has the facility, with no disrespect, to write that kind of very tight lyrical style which was required for Broadway productions. Um, Do you think that there is a special relationship with Bernie that will always continue and no one in any way can be a threat to it?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as as uh, we've stated a couple times, they re- their relationship really is a pair of brothers. Uh, Bernie is the brother that Elton never had, and and uh, vice versa. So I think that that relationship will will completely endure. Um, I mean, Elton certainly has the capacity to write with other people, as you mentioned for Broadway shows. It's a different kind of writing, a different kind of dynamic to it. And Bernie is more the introspective uh, writer. So uh, I think they will all always continue to, to work together. But if, if there became a rift or something, or Bernie said, I'm done with this, Elton could certainly go on and work with other lyricists. But I think their relationship is one that uh, is really the most endearing, loving relationship that Elton has had. It dates back to the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, it's, it's one that will endure, I think so.
0: Well, I would be remiss before we go if I didn't ask you what your favorite Elton John album was and why.
1: Uh, Goodbye or Yellow Brick Road has a lot of, of memories for me, and that will always be special. If I had to, uh, as they used to say uh, uh, at Tower Records, oh, I love Tower Records. Yeah, I wish it was back. Yeah, I know. I just, I just, <laughs>
0: I can, I can see the yellow, orange, and red marquee oh my in my God, mind. I want yeah, to I know. Back Tower yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But they
1: always have, like people's desert island discs. So if I had to pick one album to be stuck on a desert island with, that was an Elton album, it would be Goodbye Yellow Brick road.
0: Good. Did you know that Desert Island Discs, that term originally comes from a British BBC radio program where they have various persons coming. They've been doing it. For, I think it's one of the longest running programs on British radio since the 1950s. And they've oh, had wow, people coming. Yeah, that's that's the origin of, of, of the term there. Uh-
1: you learn something new every day. That's you do. Fantastic.
0: Listen, I have learned what a delight you are to have as a guest. And I'm asking you to please come back when you have your new book, which we won't even go into at this point. But there's a new book coming in September, folks, and you don't want to miss it. So thank you so very, very much. You've been an utter delight. We've been speaking with Mark Bego, who has a new book about Elton John, Rocket Man: The Story of Elton John. It's a good read and fun to have. Thank you so very much, Mark.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: Take care and God bless.
1: Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is Chief of Content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.